it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Before I get to word of the week, I have some breaking news for you all. Your girl got hooked on another reality show. Now, last year, I became fixated with Real Housewives of Potomac. This year is Love and Marriage Huntsville. I mean, I'm pretty much through season one and woo, this shit is hilarious. A lot of people on this show whose name starts with an M. Melody, Martel, Marceau, Maurice, but I'm all the way in. So hit me up Huntsville Hive to let me know when the weekly support group meetings are. I need to know when to join my community. Now, let me get to the word of the week, which is systemic. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Part of the reason reality shows are so popular is because they serve as a brief distraction from actual reality, which sometimes is a little too much to bear. Last week, we learned a beloved and extremely talented director one of the best storytellers of his generation, a former guest on this podcast, and someone I consider a friend, almost was killed by Atlanta police in January. I'm talking about Ryan Coogler, the director who gave the culture Black Panther and is in Atlanta working on Black Panther 2. He also gave us Fruitvale Station, Creed, Judas and the Black Messiah, and Space Jam. Last week, TMZ broke the story that Ryan was detained by police at Bank of America after being falsely accused of robbing the bank. Now, Ryan was clearly a victim of racial profiling, and it's not hyperbole to say he was almost killed. The police drew their guns on him in the bank, and if at any moment had Ryan made the wrong move, I have no doubt he might have been dead. Now, how did it come to all that? Well, it started with Ryan handing the bank teller a note asking her to discreetly count the $12,000 he was withdrawing from his own account. Because, you know, people out here getting robbed. Let's listen to the 911 call. I didn't feel comfortable, so he told me to call police while he, I guess, stalled. What is it? What's on the note, ma'am? Um, it just says I want to withdraw $12,000. Um... Just be discreet. Is this an actual customer, or are they trying to rob the bank? They had a debit card, and he inserted it. He gave me a California ID, but I was like, okay, um, I was like, how do you want the cash back? And he's like, just look at the note. And he had no weapons, correct? Not that I know of. Wait, full stop. What bank robber gives the teller his bank card and shows his identification? Okay, let's keep going. But he inserted his debit card, and then I asked for his ID. He handed me his ID as a California ID. But I didn't look at his name because I'm just like so shook Has this teller never received an out-of-state ID before? And she revealed another key fact. She never even looked at his ID, which you know. It's her fucking job. Let's continue. Okay, so none of his information was even verified. Okay. He might just want to be discreet, but I have police around. 
The 911 dispatcher co-signs the teller didn't even try to verify his ID. And even though the dispatcher clearly doesn't sound convinced that an actual crime is taking place, she still sends the cops anyway. Now, when the police show up, Again, they draw their guns on Ryan as soon as they enter the bank. They put him and his baby nurse, who also was handcuffed, in a squad car. And by the way, the reason he was withdrawing such a large sum of money from his account is to pay his baby nurse because that person prefers to be paid in cash. The teller, the manager of the bank, both need to be fired. And that branch needs to be renamed the Bank of Ryan Coogler or the Bank of Wakanda at the very least. But to be honest... There isn't a check that Bank America could write that could rectify this situation, even though that doesn't mean they shouldn't try. Now, a lot of people took note that the bank manager is black. The teller who called 911 is black. Some of the officers who showed up and drew their gun also black. Listen, it's not surprising that some black people participate in the same anti-blackness and white supremacy as white folks do. I've been in stores where black security guards follow around, quote unquote, suspicious black people. I know black people who will not support black businesses, particularly in the service industry, because they don't trust the product is quality. I've overheard black people question the intelligence of black professionals or simply believe someone white is smarter and that they're just better. We've been conditioned to believe the worst of our own people because we grew up in a white supremacist society. That at every turn reminds us that black people are inferior and untrustworthy. This is why simply placing black people inside white supremacist institutions like the police doesn't change the rate in which black people are discriminated against, victimized, brutalized and punished. Some people have tried to make this about what Ryan should have done. He should have had a wealth manager who can help him make these withdrawals. He should have taken off his hat and sunglasses. He shouldn't have been withdrawing this much money. He should have called the manager because he wanted that much money. But this is not about Ryan's actions. This is about racism being systemic. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is an exceptional actor. What I love about her is that she chooses her roles with undeniable purpose. In the last two years alone, she's played Maddie Moss Clark, the mother of the beloved Clark sisters. She's also had a major role in Lovecraft Country. And she recently received an Academy Award nomination for playing Orsine Price, Serena and Venus Williams' mother, in the incredible movie King Richard. She is just absolutely dynamic. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, I'm Janu Ellis. So, Anjanu, you recently did an interview with the New York Times. I think it came out last November. And you told a journalist something that truly resonated with me because I too grew up this way. They were asking you about your first role, which was on New York Undercover. And you said, I say this with intention because somebody will hear this and feel themselves reflected in my story. My grandmother stood in line for government cheese for peanut butter just so we could eat to sustain us. I was raised on AFDC. A lot of people don't know about AFDC. (laughs) Like I, I know about it. We actually used to just call it ADC. 
That's what we called it in Detroit, right? You said I would hide because I would be so embarrassed that my grandmother was paying for our groceries with public assistance. See, they have EBT cards now. They don't know about the food stamp booklets. They don't know about that. They don't they don't, know they don't know nothing about that, about that cheese, that Lord, you could put a blowtorch on it and it would <laughs> it would melt to save your life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I was like, boy, y'all don't know about that powdered milk. Y'all don't know about any of that. Girl, Girl. that white package and that black <laughs> just said cheese. Just said cheese. That was it. <laughs> I, I was like, man, right now, where's the collection plate? Because I could pass it to my sister right now. But I love the fact that you have this perspective because uh, I think, you know, whenever I've been asked about getting through different stuff. I think about those moments. Like I was like, while this is maybe trying and frustrating, it is nothing like some of the things I had to experience growing up. So seeing that you still center that experience and it's still very much in your DNA was just so meaningful to me. Um, And so I, I wanted to ask you when you think about those experiences that you had growing up and seeing where you are now, Oscar nominated, you know, what does this mean for you from that context of what you've experienced in your life already? Well, first of all, let me just say, I didn't realize that I was not being recorded before. So I want to repeat Miss Hill you that I'm very happy to be sitting down here with you, even though we're not in the same place to say to you, thank you for being who you are and thank you for standing in your truth. Well, thank you. Um, But ma'am, I'm here to remind you this interview is about you, not about me. (laughs) I know, but I, I, you know, I think that cool child, when you come from that, it, 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 it like, I don't know how to say that. It's like everything that you do has to matter. And that that's hard. That's hard because every that's not everybody's journey. It's not. But for for me, everything that I did had to matter because I came because I came from that. You know, I I came from um, I came from uh, a situation where. You know, I I didn't have a sort of creative liberation, right, where I could like, you know, I could go to dance classes or I could. And and if we did those things, we we did those things like that. We had talent shows. We had everybody was a thespian in my church. You know what I mean? Because we had to do that, you know, but you certainly weren't doing that in preparation of a for a career. You know, you did that because it, it was. Thank God we did it, but we did it because we it was it was in service. It was our worship. It was an extension of our worship. So 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 when you are when you leave home, you know, the most irresponsible thing you could do, the most blasphemous thing. Let me put it in those terms. The most blasphemous thing you can do is take all that your grandmama did and and try to go somewhere else and starve. Do you know what I mean? And and I, I couldn't do that. I, I just couldn't do that. So, you know, I was going to follow in the steps of my all my cousins and all my, my aunts and everybody else be a teacher. You know, I wasn't going to be a nurse, you know, but I was going to you know be a teacher or, you know, a lawyer. All the things that all those professions that make our families proud when you come from that when you come from that experience. And so 
I felt that I could not be irresponsible. I was not going to do, I was not going to do that. What happened was somebody else saw that in me and they kind of reordered my steps and it just turned things. And because they did that and certain sort of weird, strange things happened in the world, I stayed on that path, but I certainly did not start off in any sort of auspicious way in terms of acting or doing anything creative at all, because to do that would have been, you know, my grandmother, here's the thing. Here's the thing. My grandmother chose that. My grandmother chose that because my mother, my mother sent me to live with her and she, my grandmother raised me, but if I didn't live with my grandmother, my grandmother would have been fine with, you know, her garden and her getting help from my aunts and uncles. She would have gotten through. She wouldn't have had to do all that stuff. She wouldn't have had to have me on medic and she wouldn't have to do any of that. But because she took me in, she thrust herself into poverty, essentially. She chose to do that. Um, so when I say everything has to matter, I have it, it matters because I can't sully what my grandmother did for me. So, you know, little decisions that other people don't think about, I lose sleep over it because of that. What was your grandmother like? My grandmother was a very withheld woman. She was quiet until she had something to say. You know, I remember one time I said, grandma, because I was an annoying kid. I said, grandma, what would you change about your life? Oh, I was so annoying. And she looked at me and said, what would I change about? What are you talking about? And she said, well, I wish I talked more. And when I think about her, she wasn't, she didn't, she was not a talker, but people were constantly talking to her. Her, her couch was a therapy couch, but she wasn't a talker. She showed her love through, through her actions. And she had a garden. And so I, you know, I, I grew up with my grandmama going to her garden every morning and killing chickens and, you know, killing hogs and literally murdering hogs. And we, you know, making sausage. I woke up to hogs heads in my sink. I lived that life. Now, you still keep a home in Mississippi, correct? Is that your your kind of your your place, your home? Yeah, it is my home. So why was it? And I mean, you have this obviously fantastic career. You could live full time, I'm sure, in Los Angeles or New York or wherever you chose. Why was it important to you to keep roots in Mississippi? Well, about 10 years ago, I had a family member who got very, very ill and couldn't look, couldn't live by themselves anymore. And so I um, I went back. I was living in New York um, and I went back to Mississippi to live full time um, and, um, uh, yeah, that my, that, that family member is no longer with me. Um, but I stayed even, you know, after the, I've, I've, I've chosen to stay, even though they're not, not with me anymore. And, you know, when I went back to Mississippi, that was, a, that was the best decision I made in my life because I was, I didn't, I was just sort of, I, I wasn't my, I wasn't focused in New York the whole time I was in New York, girl. I never, I never, I, cause I, the, the thing that I really, that I, the other thing in me that, that is alive and bubbling is, is writing the entire time I was in New York. I never wrote one thing, never wrote one thing, you know? And I think it's interesting because I've been reading a lot of, uh, I've been reading a lot of Alice Walker lately and she talks about this, and I've heard other other people say this, that I think 
I think the living in New York is its own act of creativity. And because you're surrounded by museums and Broadway and all this stuff, like everything, you know, that it, it kind of in a way paralyzes you. At least it did me. At least it did me. And I never wrote a thing. Never wrote one thing. As soon as I went back home, as soon as I went back to Mississippi, my brain just started working on a whole other other thing. And I think it probably had to do with the fact that I was possibly losing this person in my life and I needed to get it out. You know, that's why I had to go back home. But I still stay there because, you know, my family's there and it's it makes me happy. Uh, growing up in someplace like Mississippi, obviously, how race is handled in Mississippi is very different than how it is in other parts of the country. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Detroit. Racism is everywhere. The South is not just in the South. And I know sometimes that people don't always, they view Mississippi or Alabama as so much worse than every place else. And, and certainly they've had some, some issues. Uh, one of the things that you were very outspoken about was the Confederate flag, uh, Mississippi you know, using that as part of his, his state flag. And I know, generally speaking, Confederate flags are pretty prevalent uh, in this area, but that's a very polarizing issue in Mississippi. So what made you decide, I want to pick this fight? Yeah, it's polarizing all over this country. Yeah. You know what I mean? They Listen, they had the Confederate flag in, in, in on, on, at the Capitol. Let's, let's, let's start there. In 2021, on January the 6th, they were flying the Confederate flag in the Capitol building. So let's start there and then work our way back to Mississippi. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Let's start there and then work our way back to Mississippi. Amen. Amen. (laughs) You know, one of the things I was, you know, one of the things in in this battle that I was I was waging and I was waging it along with a whole bunch of other people who've been doing it who was doing it when I was doing it and doing it before I was doing it. One of the points that we were trying to make and one of the things that Mrs. Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer said so brilliantly that Mississippi is not Mississippi's problem. Mississippi is America's problem. And this race issue is America's problem. It's not a Mississippi problem. It's not a Southern problem. And we saw that on January the 6th, 2021, when those people had the audacity the nerve to to bring the flag of a foreign country inside the Capitol building of the United States of America. And and I had a phone call with a, a, a woman. Her name is Rose Simmons. And Rose is the daughter of one of the men who was killed at Emmanuel Baptist Church in uh, South Carolina. And she called me. She said, I need to talk to you, Ingenue. And she said, you know, I was traveling the other day and I think she was in North Carolina. And she said that, um, you know, I just saw a Confederate flag on the side of a highway that was as big as a football field. And I just thought, how is that possible? That flag was used by the young man who killed my daddy. That flag gave him permission to do that. How is it possible that that flag can fly like that on the side of the highway? And I said, yeah, I know. I know. Um, And um, yeah, that has to change. That has to change. We think and I think that there was a lot of arrogance about this, that, you know, when when the flag came down in Mississippi, oh, we're so glad 
Mississippi brought down the flag. They finally did the right thing. But we don't want to say anything about how these flags fly all over the place in this country. In Pennsylvania, it flies everywhere. And here's the thing. People think that that flag is a symbol. It is not. It is a physical it is a physical piece of 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 segregation. A tactical, tactile piece of segregation. If you put that flag out, that's somebody saying that black people don't belong here and stay out. So if integration, if segregation is illegal in this country, then that flag needs to be illegal. Well, as I often like to bring up to people is that when you go to Germany, they don't have statues of Nazi soldiers. Thank you. It is illegal to have a, a swastika Thank you. in Germany. It's illegal. It's illegal. And guess what? The United States was a part of that effort to make it illegal after after World War Two. So if we had that kind of courage to do that in freaking Germany. Why don't we do that here? And you know why? We could talk a long time about this. I know we could, because I believe I believe that there's a certain there's a certain sort of agreement with it, with what that flag no question. It, there's a level of acceptance of it that uh, when we think about historically what that flag has meant, one is the flag of losers, the flag of traitors. And for people to say this is what's their favorite phrase? It's heritage, not hate. You know, I saw the flag in Michigan. I'm in Detroit. OK, I didn't see it in Detroit, but there are, as we like to say, and I know people in Georgia like to say this as well. There's Atlanta and there's Georgia. There's Detroit and there's Michigan. So the, you go the further away you are from Detroit. That's when you start seeing those flags and those symbols that let me know as it lets you know that this is not about any sort of heritage or history. This is all about hatred. Yeah. And it is a heritage. It's a, it's a heritage that's built in that's built in hatred. Mm -hmm. It's built in hatred. It's built in hatred. And it's something that this country, for all of its talk, it has to make it has to act to turn away from. And that that that's, means from from. Everybody, President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, it's not just it's not just the Republicans. It's it's all of us. Yeah. It, nevertheless, because there are people who, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, but there are people who want to hold on to this symbol of hatred. Um, how did that play in Mississippi? The fact that you were being vocal about this? You know, they call me everything but a child of God, you know. But here's the thing. I didn't care. I, I didn't, I really didn't care. And I'm not, I'm not on social media. I really try to do, I do this. I don't try to do it. I do this, you know? Um, and so a lot of what people felt about me didn't, I, it never got to me because I didn't care. And if it did get to me, I just like, I, I don't care. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what, this is what's right. One of the first things that I did in my little, you know, campaign, I put a billboard on Highway 55 in Jackson, Mississippi, and I had um, We Shall Overcome, and I had it written in Confederate flags. And that made people so mad at me, girl. Like, they were just like, why would she do that? But here's the thing. Black people got mad at me, too. This dude at the mall just went off on me. Like, I can't believe that you would desecrate Oh, we shall overcome like that. I can't believe that you would do that. And I say, yeah, that's exactly why I did it, because I wanted you to be mad. I wanted you to be mad because that the, the that flag was sort of like a sleeping bear in our culture in Mississippi. It's a sleeping bear all over this country. But at the time when nobody's saying nothing about it. 
And that was my way to, you know, to wake that bear. Mm. Um, a question that I ask every guest that appears on the podcast, since it's called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And I can't wait to hear your answer. Uh, when did you become unbothered? Because it sounds like you, you've you been in that space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've been unbothered. I've been unbothered, you know. But, you know, I, I know that, Max, I don't mean to sound cavalier about that, you know, that 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 I feel that it's it's certain things I'm supposed to do. Like you can take everything away from me, but this is what I'm supposed to do. One of the other reasons, the other part of my grandmother and her choice to fling herself into poverty is that, you know, my her husband, my granddaddy, you know, his his church was bombed by the police in 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 Mississippi, you know, at a time that Mississippi was called the bombing capital Macomb, where my town was called the bombing capital of the world. You know, and he they took him to jail in the middle of the night while he had his pajamas on. And, you know, thankfully he came home. Everybody didn't come home, you know, when all that stuff was going on. So that's that's where I, I, I live in the house with those people. Do you know what I'm saying? So that that's that's what I know. And my aunts and uncles got that inside them. And so I don't know how to be I don't know how to be anything else. I really don't. I don't know how to be anything else. And to be something else, to be to be a coward in the face of that um, would feel, um, um, you know, disingenuous would be not would be would be, you know, blasphemous. So I so in that sense, so in that sense, I, I guess I've been unbothered for a long time. I think that, you know, where where I have to show courage is is doing this acting thing. Yeah. How so? A lot of reasons, girl. You know, I don't I don't look a certain way. You know what I mean? Like I don't have a body that, you know, that that is celebrated in this in this world. Um I don't have a hair, you know, I don't have all of that stuff. I don't, I don't have those things. And so, um, I think because I was at at home, uh, at home most of the time that I, I, I didn't, I wasn't bothered by it, you know, but when I'm in this, when I'm getting to this machine, right. When I'm in the machine of it, you know, when I'm not away, when I'm away from there, I'm away from those folks who were like, girl, you fine. This is, your, you know, when you're away from those voices and the only voice you got is the one in your head, that 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 is when you I have to remind myself that I got people, you know, that I'm not that I'm not alone, that I'm OK, just as I am, that I am enough, just as I am. And I, I don't I don't succeed all the time. And sometimes that can be hard. It's better now. But it's it's a constant thing. It's a constant it's a constant thing to just have to tell yourself, listen, no, you don't look like that. No, you don't sound like that. No, you're none of those things. But you're you have to be okay with you. Does that make sense? That makes a a lot of sense. And I often have been amused. Sometimes I'm a, a, a little annoyed by it when wonderful actresses like yourself who have been wonderful for a very long time when inevitably it happens. I saw it happen. We all saw it happen with Regina King It's happening with Regina Hall. I I mentioned to you before we tape this podcast, I was talking with your friend, Cheryl Lee Ralph. There comes a point where the white folks discover who y'all are. (laughs) And I find this to be hilarious because I'm like, okay, so So now that you have the success of King Richard, which is a fantastic movie, and I have long said that 
the Williams story, Venus and Serena, Richard and obviously Orsine Price, their mother. This is arguably the greatest sports story, maybe the greatest American story of all time. When you think about the improbability of having not just one tennis champion, two, two who would be in the conversation for being the greatest ever. One who is to me the greatest ever in Serena Williams. Like this is impossible coming from where they, they came from. So, okay. So now every, the, the white folks have discovered you Angenu, and they're like, Oh, here's an Oscar nomination and, uh, you know, go to globe and all this other things. But w- knowing the time and the work you've been acting now for well over 20 years, what does it feel like to you when this moment happens, when you know you are, hardly a new sensation as some people would like to perceive you as being (laughs) girl you know I I had decided a long time ago a long time ago I was like listen if I can just pay my rent stay employed you know pay this rent pay other people's rent (laughs) um keep food on the table keep it being able to do some fun things for my niece and nephew you know what I mean I'll be all right. Like, I'm okay. I'll be on the sidelines cheering other people and sometimes being jealous is I don't know what, but I will, that's, that's, that's the Lord. That's what you got for me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'll do that. And I had decided that that was, that was how it was going to be, you know, but you know, things switch in these very unexpected ways. And, and, and that happened. And, you know, that the thing is, is that black directors, you know, Ava saw something in me, you know, and, and when she cast me in, in and when they see us, um, Clement Virgo cast me in, 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 in Book of Negroes, um, Ronaldo Marcus Green cast me in, in, in King Richard, um, Misha Green cast me in, in Lovecraft Country. So I got a path you know, of, of these black directors who Barry Jenkins put me in a bill, if Bill Street could talk. So, you know, I, I, they saw something, they saw something in me and, um, things, things switched, you know, so now I'm in this other, other kind of conversation, but yeah, girl, I, 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 if, if this didn't happen, you know, I would, I'm used to it not happening. So you know, it is what it is. And I do believe that we have to have our own measure of excellence. So in your mind, has Hollywood actually changed or is it just that we as in black people, you mentioned the black directors that obviously know how talented that you are or have black folks, once we get to those positions, just gotten a lot more intentional, determined about making sure we're seen? Jamel, I think it's cyclical. You know what I mean? I think it's cyclical. Like, I think we have these moments because we've had them before, you know, uh, where it's like, yeah, we're, you know, it's all about us. Do you know what I mean? We are high, have high visibility. Um, and, you know, it's like the moment of the post-racial Obama, post-racial Obama period. You know what I mean? And then the next thing we know, it's just like, what, what is this? My girl, works at Hampton. They got another bomb threat. This They got a bomb threat this morning. They didn't get the initial, they weren't a target for the initial uh, threat, but she called this morning. She said, we got our bomb threat, you know? Um, so like I said, it's, it's, it's cyclical. And so it's, and so because it's cyclical, um, we have to stay vigilant. We have to stay vigilant, you know, and it's not enough, you know, it's not enough for us to be, be visible, 
That's not enough. That's not enough because we've been represented for a long time. They didn't have they have our faces everywhere. You know what I mean? But that's not enough. We don't have we have we have to be have more than just being seen. We need to be heard. We need to take up space, real space in the way that um, in the way that uh, our white counterparts are able to do. So, I mean, you know, we we there's a lot said like black women are more visible than ever. But if you just look at what comes up when you put on Netflix, just, just scroll down. Nine times out of 10, you have to really scroll to see black faces. The majority of the faces that you see are going to be white faces. And I don't I don't necessarily have to see black faces. Anybody who's not who is not white. And I and I feel like that that tells us that we still have we still have a lot more work to do. There's so many stories, particularly about black women. And it's not stories. It's not stories. It's not narratives. It's the truth of who we are. It's it's the truth of what we have done in this country, not our contribution, but how we made it. You know, it's not contributing to something. It's it's a testimony to to how we've made it. Uh, when I say made it, I don't, I don't mean overcome it. I mean, have been essential to the cre- to its creation. That's what I'm talking about. And it's that kind of story. It's that kind of filmmaking that I want to be involved in happening. So, yes, I'm not going to sit here and say that there have not been tremendous strides before we you started this this, um, you know, recording me. I was talking about how brilliant Avid Elementary is. What I love about it is it is not just representation. It's not just a black woman's face on, you know, that's in a cast of, you know, six other non-black folks. It is a black woman who wrote this, who directed this, who created this. And they're like, you know, three other black women on the show who were just taking up space and just being alive and free and liberated and, and flawed and in front of everybody. You know, and I just I just love it. That that's that makes me excited. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, because we've seen these situation workplace comedies before that, you know, and it, it is it is great to see that representative of us. You know, that's why I love also Southside. Like Southside is hysterical. I mean, beads are both and they're showcasing such different nuanced elements of black life, you know, that are funny, you know, black working class life. You got, um, you know, black educators. And it's it's really representative, I think, of just how strong the strong black creatives are and, and the community that's coming from that. The Issa Rays and Quinta Brunson's and you and um, us just deciding that, you know, I mean, that permission stuff is kind of over with. Like, <laughs> it's just. Robin Thede, like it is what it is. I just love seeing us in all these different yeah. spaces. Yeah. Because of where, you know, you've been in your career. Um, one thing you, you mentioned a second ago about how you've sometimes you've gotten the feedback or maybe just looking around Hollywood saying like, I don't look like that. I don't look like that. That's not who I am either. Me and Shirley Ralph were just talking about this. When you fit into the space of, oh, you're talented, you're beautiful, but we don't know what to do with you. <laughs> which is so odd because they always figure out what to do with white people. But for some reason we are the big mystery, right? <laughs> like, what do we do with this black woman who's incredibly talented? Oh, I don't know. Give her work, make her a star. So what's it like for you being in the Hollywood machine, navigating, being put into that box of, we don't know what to do with you. Yeah, man. I just, I have to do it. With, I have to do it myself. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and, and I, 
that's what I, I'm really, you know, putting my energies toward that now, you know, like in earnest with intention, you know, cause I can't wait. I can't wait on folks to see that in me. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't wait on it. And, and, and listen, you know, I, I don't want this to I know this, how this can sound, but I think we need to be honest. I think we need to tell the truth. You know, I'm exhausted with the kind of storytelling and filmmaking that marginalizes women. And yes, marginalizes black women, but, but marginal, marginalizes women. I'm so bored with that. I'm bored. I'm bored by it. It's not, it's not this womanist thing that I'm saying here. I'm not interested in seeing that. I'm not interested in, in spaces where women don't exist and exist fully and all of their iterations and every, you know, I'm just not interested in that. And that kind of filmmaking still thrives. It still counts for 90% of what we see on, on television. And I think that was one of the reasons why I was excited about King Richard, because there's a way to tell this story that you don't know nothing about his wife, nothing. She just looks still in the stand. Thank you, Richard, for everything you done for me. <laughs> but I'm serious, right? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I, I want to talk to you more about how you portrayed um, Orsine Price, because I think you definitely brought some things to life that people probably had no idea about. So I want to talk to you about that. And of course, I'm from Detroit. So, you know, we got to talk about the Clark sisters because some of them went to my high school. You know, we went at different times, but like that's a Detroit legacy. That's a that's, you know, the Clark sisters and the Winans are royal family in Detroit. So I definitely want to get into that as well as your own religious background. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Anjanu Ellis. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If you listen to last week's podcast, which featured Amber Ruffin, wonderful guest, you heard me absolutely fry Mercury Insurance, who my husband and I pay for our homeowner's insurance. Well, I've got a story to tell, or rather an update to tell about how the situation was resolved. To make a long story short, Mercury Insurance threatened to cancel our homeowner's insurance because we filed a claim, had a water leak, that was repaired. And when the repairman invoiced the repairs, he put his own address rather than ours. Considering the repairman also was directly in contact with our insurance company, there is no question that these repairs were done at our house. Now, this was the second time Mercury Insurance threatened to cancel our insurance over some trivial shit. In 2021, they threatened to cancel it because of a water flu that's outside our house. According to some regulation they have, the water flu, which is just a long pipe, didn't extend past the roof of our house. It was a repair that cost less than $100. I was so frustrated with how Mercury handled the last situation that I tweeted about it. And here's what I wrote. 
Mercury Insurance is number one on my shit list today. Homeowner insurance companies that punish customers for filing a claim are the fucking worst. That tweet garnered over 798,000 impressions. And in the comment section, people were going in on Mercury Insurance as well as the insurance industry overall. Not even 24 hours after my tweet, I got a call from, you guessed it, Mercury Insurance. And the first thing they said was that they saw my tweet and wanted to know how they could rectify the situation. Oh, now y'all want to rectify some shit because I tweeted y'all wasn't shit to 1.5 million followers. Got it. The shit got handled, but it shouldn't have taken a Twitter shaming for them to act right. But I'm glad they did because now... I have homeowner's insurance not in danger of being canceled. And now back to more with Anjanu Ellis. Okay, before the break, um, I mentioned about the what you brought to playing or seeing Price. A lot of people did kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, looked at her like an ornament. So how did you bring her to life in their story because clearly this is what the sisters this is what they wanted to be highlighted so how did you do that i'm taking a minute and i'm writing that word you just used ornament because i'm gonna use that Mm -hmm. i'm gonna use it it's all yours i I would consider it an honor (laughs) Uh, you know let me know if you want to get a percentage but i'm about to use that Mm -mm. that no that is you (laughs) (laughs) no that is you sis but how did you bring the fullness and the nuance of who she is to life Yeah, well, thankfully, that was there from the beginning. She was not just an ornament, you know, that was already in the in the in the script. And I just wanted us to go as further as far as we could with that to get the fullness of her. That part that people don't know, which is that she's a coach. And, you know, people don't people don't realize that people don't know that. And 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 her daughters, as you said, Isha, 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 specifically daughter Isha. Um, you know, where they were they they were trying to make sure that that was that that was portrayed in the film. And when I found that out, um, you know, I just became very dogged about that. Um, and then hearing her recordings, uh, she did these recordings for Ray and uh, our director, Will, and our writer, Zach. Um, and she talked about her being she talked about being an athlete. And I thought that was just that was fascinating to me that you had this woman who's sort of cast as who's the, the, the wife here, but what is wife and mother here? But what is that like? You know, she's already, she's already dope, but then also she used to be an athlete. And she talks about like how, when she was, would play baseball, that they hated to see her come to the plate because she would always hit the ball so far that they have to send people like, go catch the ball, go find the ball. You know what I mean? And to hear her talk about this with such pride, you know what I mean? It's like talking, talking trash, you know what I'm saying about herself and, 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 and meaning that, meaning it. So how does that convert to motherhood? You know, how does that convert to a wife? And so I just started, I just pulled from that. And then also beyond that, you know, Ms. Ms. Orsina is a Jehovah's Witness, so I made sure that I went to a, a worship service for the Jehovah's Witness and, and talk about these spaces that, you know, black women don't fully exist in is that women of faith, particularly because I think women of faith are really disregarded and seen as um, ornaments 
um, seen as, you know, half women, uh, half people, uh, seeing as sort of being um, these silent, silent witnesses to the world, when in fact, there would be no civil rights movement, there would be no freedom rights movement in this country if it weren't for Black women of faith. So that was the other thing that was really important to me and to build and in, in, in building the character, building her. When you're in the midst of a project like this, be it when you're filming or even when you're just reading and trying to understand the character, do you start to get a sense that this is going to be special? Does that ever happen or you just do the work and you just hope it turns out <laughs> good? Listen, girl, we we shot that in 2020. You know, we shot that before it was a vaccine. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, you know, none of these things that we're doing now to sort of kind of keep us alive here. None of that stuff was in place. So, you know, we started shooting in January and we didn't finish until December because, you know, we lo- everything locked down in the, in the middle. So for me, I didn't think we were going to finish the movie, period. So just finishing it felt like it was enough. I got to say, I was just, oh, we did that. Thank God. You know what I mean? So all of this stuff that's happening now just feels like it's so it's really unexpected. And I'm just ha- really, really happy about it because, you know, we we it was a strange, weird time. Just like things are still strange and weird, but it was particularly that way then and that we got through it and we did it. Um, so that was enough. Um, and then, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, someone was asking me. Did, did I get emotional doing doing that? And I said, no, I didn't. I didn't get emotional about it. I didn't have time to be emotional because you know what I'm saying? Because she would she have time to be emotional. She had children to take care of, you know, she had five of them at that. You know, she didn't have time to be emotional. And so that's how I felt my job was. I didn't have time to be emotional because if you if you play the emotion, what you're doing is you're playing the result of something rather than playing the process of something and being present in the moment. So, no, I didn't I didn't feel I was like, this is nice. I'm opposite, you know, Will Smith. It's a big old Hollywood movie. It takes us five hours to do two pages of dialogue. Okay, you know what I mean? This ain't my life, but all right. So that's that felt special. But the bigger picture of it, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to pay no attention to that. (laughs) Uh, Well, that being said, though, you're also dealing with characters who are alive that everybody knows. So is there an additional maybe pressures and responsibility? I'll use that word. Is there a different responsibility when you're playing someone? Who's a real life person? Well, this this was it, it. It it varies. It varies. I had a different sort of point of view about playing Miss Alam, and when they see us, a different a different approach. When I played um, Dr. Maddie and and the Clark sisters, and this was different in uh, King Richard. You know, Aisha was very. She would say what she had to say, but for the most part, she let us. She was hands off. You know, in. The Clark sisters, it was another kind of thing. It was a, it was, it was people around trying to be in my ear. And I had to be like, get off me, <laughs> get off me. Let me do my thing. Trust me. Do you know what I mean? And then on, on when they see us, Miss Salon would actually be at work sometimes. So I tried to be kind to myself and um, give myself a shot at just doing my job, you know, as much as I could and be honorable to them. Well, I don't know if you 
were you privy to what uh, Orsine Price's reaction was to like once it was all done and she saw the movie? Like, what did she have to say? I don't know if you were able to receive any of her feedback. Well, Miss Orsine is a is a woman of of a few words, you know. What I mean? <laughs> so when I did finally see her when we started, you know, promoting the film, she just said, "Good job." <laughs> I felt like the clouds had cleared in my life. That that's that was good enough for me. Well, you brought up the Clark sisters, which I absolutely love this movie. And as I mentioned, my connection being from Detroit, the Clark sisters being such a huge, prominent part of Detroit's history and putting Detroit on on the map for good things, because usually my city is not known for a lot of good things, because that's how people perceive us. You know, Maddie Moss Clark, uh, you know, who you played. It's, it feels like your religious background and the way you grew up, um, you know, being in church all the time with your grandmother, that that's something that would inform maybe how you played her. I mean, did it and and how so? Oh, absolutely. My cousin, after the after it came on television, called my other cousin was like, oh, you ain't doing nothing but playing grandmama. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> That's what I was doing. I had no idea because I'm for real. Is it is it true though? Is like what I mean on a subconscious level, yeah. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, I'm playing somebody that I grew up with. You know what I mean? I went. I was in the house with this woman. So so yeah. I actually thought though I was more more like you know pulling from my aunt. But now that when my cousin said that, I was like, yo, you're right. I was. I was. That's Murtis Taylor. That was <laughs> that was that came to work every day. <laughs> so, yeah, girl. I Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like, though, growing up with that kind of intense religious focus? Because you I mean, you were you were the, the church kid that was in church all day, every Sunday. Uh, so how did you cope with that? Listen, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey. I wouldn't take nothing for my journey. I cannot, I can't say that enough. Um, it's made me, you know, even though I didn't know that I was going to ultimately be an actor, it has made me a better one because I had that background. You know, there's stuff inside me that is just, that has been planted that I can just pull from emotionally, you know, that I pull from, I can pull from emotionally just as a black woman who lives in America, but also my, my responses to that, you know, I was, I was given an access to, to that from a young age, you know, like crying in the midst of pain and joy, do you know what I mean? And, and, and calling on something outside of myself, like all of that stuff, you know, and, and it don't have to be God. You know, it don't have to be white Jesus. It don't have to be black Jesus. It don't have to be brown Jesus. It don't have to be a man, you know, how whatever that is. But calling on something and being in worship to something that's outside of myself, that was planted in me a long time ago. And that's helped me to cope better with being with being a black woman in America also, but help me, helping me be a black creative person in this country. And there's so much to say about all the things that happen in within those walls of a church that have been that are damaging and have damaged us as black people, racism, I mean internalized racism being one of them, homophobia, misogyny, all of that stuff. And I take all of it. I take all of it. I fight it, I battle it, but it is still where I want to be on a Sunday morning, you know? Um, because it is the place where I am. I am in worship with black other black people. And it is what sustains me. 
It is what keeps me at peace, even when I'm embattled by it. That's what I feel. Yeah. I saw a quote that you said that it wasn't until maybe like 10 or 15 years ago that you actually believed your acting career was sustainable. Despite the fact that when you were asked, you had already been in the game for a decade or so, right? So why didn't you think this career was sustainable? It wasn't sustainable to me because it wasn't a dream, you know? And 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 it was as it was only as sustainable as I was able to take care of myself and take care of my family with it. And then when that if that ever didn't happen, then it then it meant that that then this I had to find something else to do. Do you know, everybody's not like that. People will say and I hear them. and I think this is so dope. They're like, look, this is all I know how to do. I'm going to do this thing to the wheels come off. I don't care. But I, I have. I've never felt that way. You know, I've always felt like I said earlier, like I got to do something to keep my family from going into poverty and keep us out of that. So I, whatever it is I got to do, I have to do, I have to do that. No, no matter how humiliating it is at this point, that's what I have to do. And then, so there's that. And then, you know, I just never thought people would continue to hire me. You know what I mean? I just didn't like, no, at some point, somebody's going to be like, yo, girl. You are exposed. <laughs> How'd you get in here? Uh, I, I believe that your grandmother passed before ever seeing you be a professional actor or like really obviously in the in the teeth of your career. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Did, yeah she didn't see anything. So how much do you think about now what she would think about your career? Well, my grandmother wasn't really. There was a certain point where I left school, I left Tougaloo, and I, I drove in a car with my friend, Renita Martin, to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, didn't have no job, nothing. But, you know, this person who I told you about, um, who told me to go to leave Mississippi and go do something else. So I, I did that. And I just abandoned my college education, which is what you're not supposed to do at all. And I did that. And, you know, my family, someone asked me, how did my family feel about that? And I remember like, they didn't really say anything to me. They didn't really say anything. They just sort of like, I think they decided that that ain't nothing to be done about this girl. She's going to do what she want to do. And they were okay with that. As long as I didn't have to say, can I have, I need you to do something for me. Cause when I went to Providence, I was working three jobs I was taking care of myself. I never asked them for anything. I never asked them for anything. So they were okay as long as I didn't come back begging. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, n- now you're like really getting into writing. Um, I know you did the project you were working on uh, about Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the great women of American history. Uh, what kinds of things would you like to produce now? Well, the what I did was a, a short, a short, right? Uh, that was actually, you know, co-produced by Christine Swanson and myself, who directed the Clark Sisters, who's also from Detroit. Telling you, Detroit people, now listen. Look at that. <laughs> so, so yeah. So this this thing that I am developing about Mrs. Hamer has not the the full thing that a full piece has not yet been done. So that's the thing that I want to produce. Continue to write and produce. 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, oh, it's already written. It just needs to see the light of day. And so it's the, those kinds of stories that I want to tell. I'm very boring in that way because I'm like, yo, I want to tell stories about, you know, these black women who were a part of the freedom rights movement in this country. Those are the stories that I want to tell. And I I feel that it, I for me, it's important to tell those stories because they're not being told in classrooms. And there's an attack on that kind of that history. So, yeah, that's what I, that's it. You know, I mean, I, it's kind of amazing that Fannie Lou Hamer's story hasn't been told on a wider screen, given her um, level of prominence and her significance and what she meant um, to the movement. Um, all right, Anjanu, before I get you out of here, there's a game I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You pick one. Oh. And this is very important stuff. So I, this is where the controversy happens. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> this is where it happens. Okay. <laughs> Beyonce or Rihanna? Oh, you didn't lie. <laughs> this is where the controversy. This is where people. You didn't lie. This is where it happens. Oh, yeah, girl. <laughs> okay. First of all, do you remember? This is a movie called Member of the Wedding. And like, it's this little girl who wanted to marry a couple. And that's how I feel about ASAP Rocky and Rihanna. <laughs> you want to marry them? <laughs> marry them. I want to marry them. I love them so much. I'd be like going on Instagram just to see what ASAP Rocky and Rihanna be up to, girl. I love them. However, with all of my love for Rihanna, I would have to go with Beyonce. And it's because that woman works harder than anybody. Yeah. She's my example of what of what hard work is. Listen, Lemonade Alone, the woman shot a video for every freaking song. Right. Come on. So, yes, I would choose I would choose Beyonce. Uh, dramatic roles or comedic roles? Dramatic roles. Yes. Even though you were, I mean, you were funny as hell as Sister Girl. So I'm just like, what? <laughs> Sister Girl needed her own movie. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. I can't do what Cheryl Lee Ralph does in Abbott Elementary. I can't do that. I can't do that. No. So dramatic roles. Dramatic roles. Okay. Uh, greens or mac and cheese? If they're mustard greens, greens. Oh, you are mustard greens. Really? My mama made the best mustard greens ever. My mama, my grandmama, my mama. Okay. Can you burn a little bit yourself? I can burn. I, listen, I can't do no greens, but what I can do is a gumbo. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Mississippi gumbo. You want controversy? I'll give you controversy. Oh, go ahead. Mississippi gumbo, not Louisiana gumbo. Mississippi gumbo. The superior gumbo. That is a hot take. That might be the most scorching Come take on. ever said. Mississippi gumbo, the superior gumbo. Come, come at me, Louisiana. <laughs> come at me, Louisiana. Come at me. Okay, what now? I need to know what's the difference between a Mississippi gumbo and a Louisiana gumbo. Okay, so Louisiana gumbo, folks, they usually do a root. Correct. They do a root. So Mississippi gumbo, folks, usually do gumbo fillet. Mm. Yeah, we do fillet. Ooh. My sister-in-law, she does her gumbo with the rube. She's she she lives her foot is on a on the border of Louisiana. So she got that like, you know. But yeah, that's that's the major difference. I grew up on that feet like gumbo. That's the kind of take you have when you're not on Instagram. See, I see what you did there. <laughs> 
know they can't light you up because you know Louisiana right there. <laughs> okay. I, but I love it though. Come at me. Come, come at, at me, Louisiana. Come at her, come Louisiana. Come at me. Come on. <laughs> uh, all right. And finally, girlfriends are living single. Oh, you gonna make me see now see Erica Alexander and then Tracy Ellis Ross. Yeah, I can't. I have to beg out of that. I have to beg out of that because it's not that's not how this works. <laughs> I know Queen Latifah produced uh, the Clark sisters, correct? Right? She was one of the producers. She sure did, and and she sure did. Her and Mary J, who's it's so good. Have you heard Mary J's new album? Uh, yeah, I'm like the president of the Mary J uh, fan club. Good morning, gorgeous. Like, is amazing album. It is everybody. Yo, do yourself a favor and watch that. Oh God. Okay, I'm gonna say living single. I'm gonna say living single because I want to represent for Kim Fields. So I'm gonna say living single. I'll say living single. And some of that, I mean, in fairness, it does depend on when you watched it, because I think I was a, a more of I was an adult when Girlfriends came out. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I wasn't when living single. So I had a, like some of the stuff that they were talking about. I had yet to experience. But then right. I did experience it. And so Girlfriends was my shit. I was like, oh, hey, I get this one. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, man. Dope, both of them. Both of them ahead of their time, uh, which is another thing I appreciate. And I, I watch them. I love the fact that they put girlfriends on Netflix because I'm all in. Uh, but Anjanu, thank you so much for spending this wonderful time with me. You are brilliant. Uh, I know you don't do this for the awards, but let me tell you, I cannot think of anybody harder I'm going to be rooting for uh, when these Oscars come out um, or when the show actually uh, is on air because like, you deserve to win for that role. Like, You did a hell of a job as you have done your entire career so because i know you're gonna bring the fire on an acceptance speech you gonna have i know i know it's gonna be everything so it's like i'm rooting for you <laughs> you gotta do this listen they, no see they that they they gonna make sure i don't win <laughs> they don't want no i'm looking they don't want me up here because i'm telling you you gonna give a speech for the ancestors on that one i know it <laughs> so let me tell you something i'm just I can't believe like the, the nomination by itself is just still so strange. And I feel, I do, I know it sounds mad cliche and funny and corny and weird, but I do feel like I won something already. So I'm good. I'm really good. I'm good. Well, we're we going to hope you, you, you win it, win it. So I, I understand like it's great to be nominated, but uh, I'm throwing up a prayer for you to win this, but uh, thank you for everything that you do for your work. And I just can't wait to see also more of the brilliant things that, that you write. Cause as a writer, when you said that, like you were really focusing on your writing, that just made my heart sing. Cause we need more writers in this world for sure. So Anjanu is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fucking I'm bothered. I don't know if it's because I'm more sensitive to it as a black woman, but I have noticed a pattern of black men and non-white men belittling black women and reminding us that we are unwanted and completely undesirable in the podcast and digital space. And fuck it, I'm bothered. 
Clips of these men going in on black women seem to go viral with the quickness. And the latest example of that comes from a podcast called Hardly Initiated, which I hadn't heard of until this clip went viral. Literally, she says, I got a good job. I make very, very good money. And she says, the only thing I need now is a man. <laughs> it's like, yo, like, <laughs> it's like, who wants you? Who wants you? You're you right. right. Like, once you have achieved these things, you have unfortunately disqualified yourself. Ooh, and, and, shit. And what it is, is these, because I, and this is the thing, I'm not blaming Ooh, the, the women. women are going to hate him for that shit. No, no, no. <laughs> That was Ryan Ketchings, the co-host of Hartley Initiated. He was giving me, I'm probably five foot four vibes. I'm smelling a mixture of insecurity and who hurt you cologne. Now, Ryan Ketchings didn't specifically say he was talking about black women, but that is implied because that's who they typically discuss on this podcast. The problem is that this is now the new recipe for success on podcasts and digital platforms. Black men or non-white men having podcasts where the evergreen endless topic is discussing how unworthy black women are. I read an extraordinary piece about this on Ale.com by a writer named Nicole Young who wrote about how because of a bad Zoom date she had, she learned about something called the black manosphere. Now, what is the black manosphere? Here's Nicole Young's description. Within the black manosphere's fiefdom, there are many subgroups, rival influencers, competing philosophies, and myriad content creators, but each of them contain one common thread, a concerted, explicit disdain for black women. When I peeked into the manosphere, it was as if Kevin Samuels, who is perhaps the king of black manosphere, it's like he had cloned himself a thousand times. It's where black men use terms like hypergamy, a word I had honestly never heard of until I took this deep dive into the black manosphere. The definition of hypergamy is the action of marrying or forming a sexual relationship with a person of a superior sociological or educational background. Men in the manosphere often accuse black women of being hypergamous. They also use words like alpha male and high value man. Many of the men who listen to these podcasts and consume this information, and I'm using the word information very loosely, blame black women for the overall condition of the black community. It's not white supremacy or institutional racism that has created inequity and injustice. It's black women not knowing how to stay in their place because we went out and earned degrees and started businesses and maybe spent a little less time being obsessed with having kids and being married. That led to the downfall of our community. We didn't let them be real men. And because of that, black people are screwed. The sad part is the reason this ashiness now has an audience is in part because of other black women. When you scroll the comments on these YouTube conversations, so many of the people egging this group on and supporting these dumbass conversations are black women. Now, in many ways, this is nothing new. This is straight from the Think Like a Man playbook. There always has been a cottage industry and profit to be made off telling black women what they need to do to be more desirable and loved and more worthy. And typically it's men who are leading these conversations. Hey, why do you think so many church sermons are dedicated toward telling black women how to be virtuous and appealing to find an ideal mate? 
Now, maybe I'm just unaware, but I don't see black women on these digital platform and podcast spaces announcing loudly and proudly that they don't fuck with black men or denigrating black men the way we're often denigrated. Of course, there are plenty of black women in those spaces who talk about relationship problems, the lack of black men, for example. But it's usually coming from a place of wanting to actually be with a black man. We may be frustrated with black men to the point of exhaustion, but for most black women, black men are still our gold standard. But I can't say I always feel like we're theirs. Stay unbothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.